Lord, draw us into this prayer that your servant Thomas Alkempis prayed. Lord, what is my confidence which I have in this life? Is it not you, O Lord my God, whose mercies are without number? Where has it ever been well with me without you? Or where could it be ill with me when you were present? I would rather be a pilgrim on earth than possess heaven without you. For where you are, there is heaven. And where you are not, there is death and hell. There is no one who can help me in my needs, but only you, my God. You are my hope and my confidence. Although you allow temptations and adversities, yet you order all things to my advantage. In my trials, you should be loved and praised no less than if you filled me full of heavenly comfort. So teach us the true maturity of wisdom, Lord, the faith to walk with you wherever the valley of shadow of death lies and wherever the feast in your house is prepared. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, you may be seated. You may also turn to Job chapter 3. We will begin a couple verses before it, but basically Job chapter 3. And as you see on the um, screen, the title tonight was much debated, um, but I landed on, as you can see on the screen. Sorry, poor William had a pinch hit for Frank. He went home with a really bad back. You can think about him and pray for him. Um, yeah, I landed on um, becoming um, darkness has become my closest friend. And it's taken from the last line of the psalm that we prayed before the worship music. Darkness has become my only friend. Um, and William, God bless his soul, he always comes to challenge me. He says, I don't know about that. I mean, I thought we're the light of the world. (laughs) But tonight is one of those nights where our faith must embrace the reality that sometimes we don't want to clap our hands and smile all the time. Job certainly does not. We are in one of the darkest, most disturbing chapters in the Bible. And by the way, I want to give a public shout out to the worship team for their song selection tonight because I think it just tied in so well with the study, not only in Joe, but specifically tonight and last week. Um, I am not a genius. I did not arrange that with them. That was them listening to the Lord, I suppose. So thank you, Richard. Um, All right, Job. Here we go. You guys seen the Disney animation version of Alice in Wonderland? And do you remember, um, do you remember the scene where Alice goes to the tea party, the Mad Hatter's tea party? And there the rabbit and the Mad Hatter are endlessly pouring out. The, the black British-style tea is just pouring and flowing freely. And uh, they're celebrating their unhappy birthday, which is an excuse for them for the 364 days of the year that's not your birthday. We get to celebrate our unbirthday. So you're always celebrating you on a special day. Tonight, we're coming to Job's happy unbirthday. But he does not mean happy unbirthday in a sense of celebrating this day. He wants to curse the day of his birth. For Job, his birth was one of the darkest moments ever. 
And we come, therefore, to this very dark chapter. We saw how Satan went ahead and arranged disaster in Job's life last week. Um, And now we get to see, months after waiting, Job's response. And remember, we saw Job's integrity. That was what was challenged. Will Job stay true to God if his health and wealth are taken from him? Well, both are taken from him in two phases. And yet Job's integrity was intact. Satan was wrong. That Job is indeed a true believer in God, a true follower. Because he, continue, he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes, blessed be his name. Yet, that's not the, the full test. You and I may be trained to praise God in all circumstances. But what do you do when that circumstance doesn't change month after month after month? That's the true test, right, Dr. Bravo? How do you continue to say, blessed be the Lord, when things don't improve? So this is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible, but in it we find permission to hurt and direction for our hurt. So, remember, chapter 2, verse 7. A bit of quick review. Where are we finding Job here? 2 verse 7. We saw that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. In other words, there was no point of him that was not spared from misery. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Job is sitting in an ash heap. It doesn't mean that somewhere near the ruins of his house, he's sitting in a pile of ashes that they once burned fires at. Job is in the ash heap of the city. Every ancient city had a place outside the city walls, usually where the wind is taking the smell away from the city, where they would throw out rotting carcasses and waste. That's the ash heap. And they would always, it would be burned periodically. So there was ashes and death in this place. So Job has a piece of broken pottery, not because he broke one to scratch himself with, but because that's the kind of stuff that lies around him. Shards and fragments of pe- people's previous lives now thrown to waste. And now Job himself is thrown into this ash heap. That's where he's dwelling. So he is in this place, I quoted to you last week, one commentator described it, he sat amid rubbish, rotting carcasses, playing urchins, those are those mischievous, poor, impoverished children, homeless beggars, village idiots, and howling dogs. This is the place outside of common society and common human decency. That's where he is. Now, um, in Jerusalem, they had one of these. It was uh, in the Valley of Hinnom, south of the city of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom uh, translates into the Greek to Gehenna. And Christ referred to this valley, Gehenna, when he was describing hell. So this kind of a place, this is the ash sheet that Job is sitting in. He's literally sitting in a living hell. That's what he's been reduced to. And in Hebrew, the place of the dead, so Jesus described Hades as Gehenna, as an ash heap. Um, The Jews, uh, the Hebrew word for this is shul, 
and, and you, we heard this in the psalm we prayed earlier, um, Shoal is the place of the dead. Shoal was a place of darkness, silence, and eating of ashes. That's where the dead went before Christ came to rescue them from that place. This is why he's in the ash heap, because ashes always speak of, and dust always speaks of in the Bible, of the mortality of humanity. It speaks of death. Do you remember the serpent? After he deceived Adam and Eve, God cast the serpent down from his power and authority to the underworld and said, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That doesn't mean, oh, ancient people thought serpents eat dust. (laughs) That means that he was now Lord of the place of the dead. Job is sitting and living in hell on earth. He's that low. And so, now, chapter 2, verse 11. His friends come. They hear of this. Now, his friends are from all over. Um, We see that uh, we have, like, uh, Eliphaz, the Tiamite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. Those aren't their last names. Those are the countries in which they're from. They're not from Job's country. The fact that their friends probably speaks of their high and royal status as Job likely had, and they were connected because of their great power. They hear. How does news travel back then? Very slowly. Not like this mountain at all. (laughs) It travels very slowly. It might have taken weeks to months for news of Job's misery to reach his friends, then for his friends to talk and rendezvous and to gather and travel to Job's misery. Months of this darkness, months of his hell, of sitting in the ash heap, have been going on. That's where we pick up in 2 verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. Now, we have heard, and right, the rumors went about how bad this was. But when they saw him, the rumors were just a shadow of the reality. For in verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. So great is everything that he lost, that the man you could recognize from a distance, travelers would be coming through on the, on the highways and recognize that is Job of us. Look at his estate. Look at his house. Look at his servants. Look at the grandeur. That even now, from a distance, you could no longer recognize him. It's now ruins. Uh, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes, as Job had done, and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. They could not reach Job. They put ashes and dust on their heads to try to identify with their lost friend. They try to come into the place where he is. They're sitting in the ash heap with him. They're covering themselves with it. They're trying to enter into his hell and into his death. But Job has lost so much more than they can comprehend that they can't reach him. 
So what they resort to then is seven days of silence. Now, they might have spoken with one another, but what it says is they didn't speak to Job for seven days. The number seven is very interesting because we know from two other places in Scripture and from some of the rabbis' writings that seven days were appointed for mourning the dead. They don't speak to him for seven days because Job is so far gone from what he once was, it's as if he's dead. It's as if they've called the hearse and opened the the casket and were ready to put him in. All you can do for someone that far gone is weep. And so they weep for him. Some suffering cannot be shared Some suffering does nothing but isolate you. And if you've been in some places of suffering, you may know how difficult it is for people to connect with you in that suffering. They may do their best. Like these friends, their their best intentions are there, but you know that you're alone. No matter how many are around you, no matter how many put their arms around you, you never feel reached. Some darkness is that deep. Psalm 88 verse 18 The last verse of that psalm. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or another way that that can be translated is darkness has become my only friend. That's where Job is. So his friends cannot empathize. They can only sympathize. Which to their credit is what they came to do. The difference is sympathize is when you suffer with someone empathize is when you enter into their suffering. These friends are limited. They cannot go where Job is because they haven't been there. No one has suffered like him. They can only suffer with him. They cannot enter into his suffering, which is what makes Job feel all the more alone. No one can hold my hand in this. So he's alone in his darkness and hell. And that's where chapter 3 comes in. And after seven days of silence, the morning of his decreated world, Job's whole world has been undone. As God made the world in seven days, his world has been undone in these seven days. And now he speaks. But before we hear these completely troubling words, I need to remind you guys that in 2 verse 10, we read... Um, he, after he talks to his wife, he then, it then says, our narrator says at the end of two verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And remember, that's our narrator prompting us to realize that as we're about to hear all of Job's words from this point on to the end, nothing he says is counted as sin. That's important to hear because you might hear someone speak or about to read and think, how dare you say that? Job does not sin with his lips. And that's also concluded again at the end in 42 verse 7, uh, 41 verse 7, when God says that Job has spoken rightly of me. Job is uplifted. In, he is, in, he's, what's the word? In, not integral, but anyways, he's righteous. <laughs> he's righteous in his words. So uh, here we go. Here's what chapter 3 is going to look like. He's going to first curse the day of his birth and the night of his conception. Then he's going to lament that he did not die at birth or die in the womb. 
And then third, he's going to question why life is given at all. Chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. This is his happy unbirthday. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. Okay, so let the day perish which I was born, and the night that a man said, A man is conceived. So now he's going to talk about the day he's born. Um, so that's verse 4. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. That word claim is also translated as redeem. He wants darkness to redeem his life. Usually we want to be redeemed from darkness and death. Job wants a death and darkness to redeem him from life. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And now he turns his attention to the night he was conceived. Verse 6. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. In other words, let's just erase that day from the calendar. My birthday, let's just make that gone. It's just a gap. September 3rd, let's say. So the calendar goes from September 2nd to September 4th. Let there never be a day like that anymore. It's gone. 364 days of the year from now on. Verse 7, behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Um, the, he, the, the commentators are suggesting that the Hebrew there, joyful cry, is what you would think on a night of conception. It's an ecstatic, euphemistic cry of pleasure. And Job is cursing that that ever happened. May that night have barrenness. May there be no sexual joy. Verse 8, let those who curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Um, that word day there, Hebrew is yom. The Hebrew word for sea is yam. So the difference is an O and an A. The trouble is, is that in the Hebrew, there's no vowels. Those are supplied later um, in later um, to help readers. So we don't know for certain if this word is sea or day. Um, C probably makes more sense because he's saying, let those who curse that night, who curse the sea, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Leviathan was a sea monster. And you read about him a couple times in scripture, but here he's, he's, he's asking that, peep, that whoever has access to the sea monster, rouse him up. Let him devour me in my life. We'll come back to that one in just a minute. Uh, verse 9, let the stars of that night's dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. So he now wants the stars of that night to be dark. Remember that God turned the stars on in creation. Job wants them turned off. He in every way wants to undo his creation. Now his lament in verse 11 He's going, to, he's going to ask uh, two questions about why 
why did I not die in the womb? Why did I not die when I came out of the womb? And then he's going to um, conclude with, death is the only place I can rest. So verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? It's probably his mother's knees as you pick a child up and you get ready to nurse them. Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. So had I died at birth, I would have been able to lie down and be at peace. I would have been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. It's not entirely clear what that means, like they rebuild ruins for themselves. But um, a couple of people propose what they're saying is the great kings built themselves these like tombs, these great tombs like people did in ancient times and filled it with gold and silver so that when they die, they have that in the afterlife. Um, or maybe it's saying that they built these great things in life, but then it fell into ruins as they died like because like everything's temporary. But either way, it's clear that what Job wants here is he wants to go where even the great go. At least they have rest in death. So I want to go there. Then his second lament is in verse 16. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Why did I, in other words, not come out dead already? Forget coming out and then dying as an infant. Why didn't I just come out dead? There the wicked cease from troubling. So that would give me rest, he's going to say, verse 17. There the wicked cease from troubling. That's the place of dead. They cease from troubling. And there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of their taskmaster. Death is the great liberator for those in misery. That's what Job's saying. I want that. 19. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. That's his lament. And now he questions, why is life given at all? Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? Job wants to die so badly. This is a hidden treasure to him. He wants to dig it, but he cannot find it. Verse 22, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden from whom God has hedged in? In other words, like, why is, light, why is life given to someone whose life is cornered in misery, is what he's saying, who God has hedged in? Like me, I'm hedged in, I'm stuck in this ash heap. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. What you're struck by in this chapter is the theme of darkness. It's very dark. He says darkness quite a lot. He's just wanting the way God brought creation in life. He's wanting all that to be reversed. Just take it all away and let me just nihilism, nihilism, just let me perish and just everything is just stupid. He just can't take anything. But then you see in verse 8, if you go back to that one, he talks about people rousing up Leviathan. Leviathan was 
an ancient sea monster that the, pops up in the Bible. Um, he was considered the embodiment of evil. We're going to see Leviathan later in Job. He's going to show up. God's going to talk about Leviathan at the end. And he's, he's considered the embodiment of cosmic evil. He's the power that is ceaselessly opposed to God's purposes. In other words, Leviathan is, in a way, he, he's, he's, he's like this, um, another way of describing Satan. It's, the two go together. That sometimes Satan is described as the archangel. Sometimes he's described as the sea monster. But what we need to know is that Leviathan in scripture, you can see Psalm 74 verse 14, Leviathan, his head has been crushed and he's been cast down to the sea. The seas where Leviathan is kept. Jesus says that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. But at the end of time, Leviathan will once again come up out of the sea to bring his reign of terror on the earth. Do my Bible students have any images coming to their minds? Leviathan was believed to be a seven-headed sea monster. In Revelation 13, we have a seven-headed sea monster rising up out of the sea. Leviathan's return, which John calls the beast. And all Jewish readers would know the beast and Leviathan. Um, But here's what we see. We see that as Job begins to think about Leviathan, even though Satan's name is not mentioned from this point on anymore, Satan is at work subtly with his dark arts. Satan has been probing into Job's thoughts and his heart, and he's rousing in Job these ideas of darkness and death. That's what we see going on here. Um, Robert File, he said this in his commentary, not only has Satan struck at Job's family and body, but is subtly insinuating images of death and chaos into his mind. Here, Satan is present. And here, Job's trial continues. Satan will not relent. It's not like he kicks you and he's like, ha ha, he's down, I'm done. He's going to keep kicking you when you're down. And here, he sees thoughts. He wants the, the, the terror of Leviathan raised up in his life. Boy, literally dark thoughts here. This is where Job is. Now, are we really alone in the dark? Job feels alone, and his thoughts tell him he's alone, and his friends will begin to tell him he's alone. Let's look ahead a little bit at Job chapter 5, and his first friend is going to, this is next week, this will be his first speech, um, Eliphaz says in chapter 5, verse 1, he tells Job this. Chapter 5, verse 1, call now, Job. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Do you remember last week, we talked about the divine counsel. Because we saw it, right? We saw Satan and the divine council, the sons of God, standing before God, reporting for duty, ready to carry out his governance over the world, right? That's a review. If you, don't, if you didn't hear that, go back and hear it because it's a really, uh, it's a really interesting um, look at the divine council that you don't see much of in Scripture. And um, what Eliphaz there is doing is he's telling Job, look, Job, why don't you just cry out to someone in that divine council? What did he call it? The, he called it... Um, 
um, the holy ones. Why don't you cry out to one of the holy ones there around God and see if they will defend you, see if they will give you answers to why this is happening. But what Eliphaz is saying is, no, none of them will answer you. Job, you're alone. This, none of the holy ones are going to come and hear your argument before God. Because Job just wants an audience with God. He just wants to God to explain himself to him. Eliphaz says, sorry, Job, you're alone. No matter what, who you cry out to, no one in that council is going to answer you. And we can feel that way in our suffering. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, when his wife died, talked about how God felt so absent. He talked about it being like a door being shut in your face, and then you hear two bolts being locked. That's how he felt God was treating him in his grief. Job is clearly looking for someone to hear him, someone to explain why these months of darkness and no answers. I'm righteous, Lord. What in the world? Nothing. And yet, somewhere deep in Job's soul, he knows, he knows that he's not abandoned. Did you catch it in his laments? There were hints in those laments. Not only did he mention God's, God twice, you saw in verse 4, may God above not seek the day. And in verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? But then um, in verse 20, verse 20, he says, why is light given to him who is in misery? And in verse 23 again, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? He obviously recognizes that light and life come from a giver. He recognizes that there is something out there that is still ruling over and governing the world. And maybe most importantly is the repetition of the question, why? Verse 11, why did I not die? Verse 12, why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts? Verse 16, why was I not hidden as a stillborn child? Verse 20, why is light given? Verse 23, why is light given? Why is that significant? Because you don't ask why unless you believe there is some hope. Job has made his bed in Sheol, he's in living hell. And yet, God is there. Psalm 139, verse 8. If I make my bed in Sheol, even there, you are there. Job is discovering this. But God feels absent. He knows it, right? There's this part in him. He knows God's still there. But why does he feel absent? Why is he so distant? Why am I alone in my darkness? That's what he wants to know. So Job is yearning for a mediator, someone in that divine council to come and explain God's purposes to him. Tell me why God's doing this. Come and and help me connect with God because I don't feel him anywhere. I can't find him anywhere. I'm stuck in this darkness and I'm alone. I'm alone with Leviathan eating at my mind. Where? Can there please be a mediator? 
We'll see this next week too, but Job chapter 9, I think it's important to see that this is part of his thinking right now. 9 verse 32, this is what he says. 9.32, for God is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter or mediator or advocate between us, between me and God. He wants to talk to God, but God is God and he's a man. He recognizes, I cannot just have an audience with God, but he's yearning for an arbiter, a mediator to step in between God and himself to give him answers, to lift him out of the darkness, to give him direction. There is no arbiter between us, or it could be translated, oh, that there would be an arbiter between us. That's a footnote in my Bible. Who might lay his hand on us both. Lay his hand on Job and God Almighty. Bridging them together. Let him take his rod away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. For I am not so in myself. I'm terrified of this God. I can't even speak to him. Oh, if only there was someone someone to put his hand on me and God, and then I can speak. Job is yearning to know he's not alone. His friends cannot enter into his darkness. They can only sit with him. I think you know, Christian, that we have this mediator Job is yearning for. Christ is this mediator the member of the divine council who has come to bridge the gap between God and man. The one who's putting his hand on people like Job and on the father and saying, come, here are the answers. Here's the direction. Here's life. Because Christ, only Christ, can penetrate darkness and loneliness like Job is feeling. His, Joe, his friends can only sympathize with him. They cannot empathize because they cannot enter such darkness, such a place of hell. But Christ can enter into this darkness and loneliness. Christ can enter into the hells that we go through because Christ literally went through loneliness, darkness, and hell in ways that not even Job penetrated. Christ went further to the farthest extreme that any human being can go to. Let's talk about his loneliness, his darkness. How about having one of your friends betray you, Judas? How about having your disciples, when you are in agony in the Garden of Eden, asking them, can you please pray for me? My soul is weary to the point of death. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, we'll pray for you. And they fall asleep. What loneliness. You simply ask that someone prays for you in your worst night and they fall asleep. And then when he's arrested in the Garden of Eden, none of them stay. They all flee. None of them stay with him. None of them give him strength. Peter follows at a distance. He's trying. But then when he's asked, oh, you belong to Jesus, don't you? No, I don't know who he is. Denies Jesus three times. And then, as if none of that was enough, on the cross, Mark 15, verse 33 and 34. 
when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So that's from noon to three. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt alone, because not only did everyone leave him, betray him, deny him, fall asleep on him, but now the Father felt absent from him. And then he descends to Shoal and Hades. As we looked at on Easter, you can listen to that if you missed it. Very important message. Jesus went literally to the worst, the darkest, the most loneliest. He went to the ash heap. Jesus suffered and died alone in darkness in literal hell, worse than Job is experiencing. So friends, he doesn't just sit with us. He's entered into what we're going through and deeper and further. And he can hold us when the bottom's falling out. He can lead us when there's no way forward. What this does is it gives us Two things. It gives us first permission to hurt, and then second, direction for our hurt. It gives us permission to hurt. You and I read Job chapter 3. We cringe. I really wasn't looking forward to doing a whole message on it, but as I looked at it, I'm like, you can't just skip this one quickly. <laughs> so you have it. <laughs> um, but with this chapter, as dark and bleak as it does, as it tells us, God didn't rebuke Job for these words. God gives us permission to hurt. It is okay to feel your emotions and to be honest with them. It is okay to come to church on Sunday, morning or night, and to not feel like a happy, clappy Christian. Praise the Lord, brother. It's all good. It is completely and absolutely okay and commissioned by God to feel like Job in church. And it's okay to not want to sing, blessed be your name, because you are good, you're amazing, your mercy endures forever, and all the great praise songs. It's okay to sit there and feel like this isn't true of me right now. This passage teaches us, and what Christ has gone through teaches us, that we have permission to hurt, but we do not hurt as those who seek hurt and wallowing in our misery as our salvation. We sit there knowing that God is there with us. And when we see others in this situation, we weep with those who weep. Because... If we do not, if we cannot embrace the challenging emotions, then we will not be able to embrace the challenging Christians. That means when a Christian is struggling with pornography, when a Christian's going through a divorce, when a Christian has recently had an abortion, 
it means that you will look at them and say, oh, how dare you? Ah, oh, sin, I can't get her near that dirty stuff. They will be alone in their darkness. Because if we cannot embrace the challenging emotions, we will not be able to embrace the challenging Christians. Christ would not look at anyone and say, oh, you're going through that? He weeps with those who weep. And he enters into their darkness, and they will not be alone. If Christ did not leave us in our loneliness and darkness, we must not do the same with each other. That's why one of the beautiful things going on right now that William and Estelle are leading is, is the family time upstairs after the service where we're hearing from one another, sharing our raw and dark stories of our testimonies. And we're having this opportunity. It's beautiful to see people realizing, wait, you've sat in the ash heap and we're protecting each other's vulnerabilities. No one has shared and said, I cannot believe you went through that. I cannot believe you did that. We're weeping with those who weep and we're rejoicing in the salvation that God has brought. It is okay to hurt. Second, this gives us direction for our hurt. Notice that despite the darkness of Job's words, what he does is he turns to lamentation. I think this is so important because we're so uncomfortable with this. Usually when you go to church and you hear the Psalms read and there's a call and response in the Psalms, usually you do the ones that praise the Lord and make people feel comfortable and really good about being in the presence of God. I haven't done that in a while. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but tonight's Psalm was not that. It was very uncomfortable. And all the Psalms through Ecclesiastes emphasize our shortness of life and death. I don't know if you pay attention and notice that. <laughs> but there's a reason for this. Because lament is real in the Bible. Almost half of the Psalms are laments. The entire book of Lamentations is exactly what it's called. It's a lament. And on Good Friday, we read through the whole 20-minute book. And some people told me how moved they were to hear the raw grief of that book. And we'll do that again on Good Friday. And then there's Jeremiah, one of the great prophets. He has seven laments in his, uh, in his prophecy, and they are raw and rough. Laments are a huge part of the Christian life. But here's the truth that you need to see. The laments are not there just to get attention. The laments are not there just because someone succumbs to their grief. The laments are there because they're offered as a gift of direction in our pain, in our darkness, in our loneliness. Because when you are in darkness, when you're in the ash heap, when your life is a living hell, many people turn to other ways to cope with it. Usually the bottle. Usually alcohol. But the lament is given to us to turn to instead of the dark spirits. Which literally is interesting how strong liquor... It's called spirits. Leviathan is in Job's mind. The darkness and the spirits of darkness are trying to pull him to the serpent's venom. Here, Job, drink this. Here, Job, wall away in your misery. Here, Job, numb yourself. Here, Job, deal with it. you. You can't cope, Job. Here's the answer. But rather than grabbing the venom, he spews out the poison in his soul. He laments his condition before God. And when we are in darkness and we feel alone and we feel like the, no one's been where we've been, we have the gift of crying out the anguish and even anger of our hearts before God because that is the direction, not 
well, I don't want to say anything bad about God. I'll just drink until I feel better. Brothers and sisters, do not partner with the demons of darkness. That battle is very clear here in chapter 3. Leviathan is trying to get Job to rouse his anger. Leviathan wants to eat and consume Job's soul. He refuses to give in. So he cries what he has to cry to plead before God. But you and I, you and I have Christ. He has trampled the serpent. He has crushed the head of Leviathan. He has cast Satan down. He has opened the gates of hell. He sits with us in the ash heap. Darkness no longer has to be our only friend. All glory and honor and praise to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.